Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we are very close to finishing up uh, point number two on our worksheet, and that worksheet is uh, seven sets of prophetic terms that we're looking at in our current series entitled Important Prophecy Terms, Important Prophecy Terms. And our whole purpose in going through this is to make sure we have, at least when I say make sure, an understanding from the Scriptures, not my understanding, not any other man's understanding, but an understanding from the Scriptures, the distinction between these seven sets of terms. Because it's very easy, without any biblical background, without any real biblical discernment, it's easy to see these seven sets of terms as being the same thing. Son of man, son of God, day of Christ, day of the Lord. We could very easily read over those in our daily reading of the scriptures and think they're the same same thing when they are, they're almost diametric opposites, uh, if we understand that from the scripture. And we have been making that um, case uh, through point one, the difference between the son of God and son of man. We're now close to finishing up our second point here, the difference between the day of Christ, which we have come to understand through our study of the Scripture, is a description of that specific, one-of-a-kind, one point in time, uh, one literal day, and actually it's going to be the blink of an eye within a literal day, sometime on the calendar in the future. We don't know. It's a signless event but it's called the rapture of the church when all the believers on the earth that trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will be raptured off the earth along with all of those who have died in Christ since Pentecost. Since Pentecost. So this is what's called the church age, the gospel of grace, which we'll talk about actually in our next set of terms. We're going to contrast the gospel of the kingdom with the gospel of grace. Yes, there were two different gospels. It's all about Jesus Christ. Don't get, don't misunderstand me. It's always about Jesus Christ. But it's um, gospels for two different sets of people. And you may find that surprising, but I, I really believe that by the time we finish our study of the scriptures over the next number of programs, when we get into point three, that you will clearly see the distinction of these two Gospels. So we're back to uh, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ being about the rapture, the day of the Lord being a period of time, actually, as opposed to a blink of an eye for the rapture. This is a period of time called the day of the Lord that starts at the midpoint, and it will go all the way through uh, the thousand-year millennial kingdom to the great white throne judgment, the final judgment of Christ. So, uh, the two judging points, if you will, that are key 
uh, points during this day of the Lord is the second coming of the Lord when he comes back to judge the earth, everyone that's alive on the earth when he comes back to judge. And compared to today, it's going to be very few people. But nevertheless, there will be a judgment of all the Jews and all the Gentiles who make it to the end of the tribulation. And then after that judgment, these are the people in their bodies as we have bodies today. I call them our carnal earthly bodies. These are the people who pass that judgment, the Jew and the Gentile. These are the people who will enter the millennial kingdom uh, of Christ and will be the people on the earth in their human bodies during the thousand-year reign. And the reason I make that distinction is we will be back as the church, but we will not have the human body that we currently understand. We will look like we did when we were here on the earth in some form. Uh, One person actually jokingly said, when we have the uplift, which is the rapture, we will have a facelift at the same time. Because our example, of course, uh, is Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus was horribly mutilated physically uh, before and then on the cross. But when he appeared in his glorified body, his eternal sinless body to the, uh, the apostles, when he walked through the wall and wanted to make sure that they didn't think he was a ghost because he said, touch me, talk to me. And by the way, uh, I'm hungry. Do you have anything to eat? So everything that would tell you physically that he's not a ghost, he did to make the point that he was there in his resurrected body. But the distinction that I want to make, and when I was talking about a facelift, is that all of the horrible um, marks that were on Christ's body from his head to his toe were gone with the exception of of the marks of crucifixion, because that's the symbol, if you will, of the sacrifice that he made for you and me. So the holes in his hands, the holes in his feet from the nails and the hole in his side from the sword from the Roman soldier are there, but everything else was gone. So uh, it's telling us that whatever frailties we have as human beings, um, if if we're alive at the moment of the rapture, Uh, those frailties will immediately vanish. They will be gone. Our bodies will be in a perfect, eternal state at that point. Um, But the earth will will be populated with people who are righteous because they've been judged righteous by the Lord at his second coming. That is all part of the day of the Lord. So, yes, most of the day of the Lord descriptions in the Bible are very negative, but it's talking about the time of judgment. Then there's going to be a time of just beauty on the earth, and that's the beginning of the millennial kingdom when people will live for hundreds of years and we will be back to uh, the way we were before the flood when we were, um, uh, first word that comes to mind is herbivore. We will not eat meat. We will not kill during the millennial kingdom, everyone, animal and human, will be, um, again, another term, vegetarian. We will not be carnivores, according to the Bible. So it's going to be a, a, a much more idyllic. It's not perfect. Remember, there's going to be death. There's going to be tears. There's going to be 
punishment and judgment during the millennial kingdom, but it'll be much, much, much less than we have today because Jesus Christ is going to be sitting on his throne in Jerusalem and the church will be ruling and reigning with him in our perfect state with our perfect minds, meeting out perfect decisions and perfect judgments, just as Christ did. So it's going to be a a wonderful time, and that's all part of the day of the Lord. But most of the emphasis on the day of the Lord has to do with Israel in the tribulation period, because this is the, it is a wonderful time, even though it's going to be a horrible time. It's going to be a wonderful time when God's wife comes to a saving knowledge of her Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that is the goal, the purpose, intent of the seven-year tribulation is to bring Israel to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that, that the Scripture tells us that will definitely happen. But as we transition forward from the Old Testament into the New Testament and all the Scriptures dealing with the period after Pentecost, in other words, after the church is formed, um, we also see the writers of the New Testament dealing with the day of the Lord because they're dealing with Israel. God's emphasis has not changed during the church age. Israel is still important to him, still important to God as his wife, but there is a period of partial blindness, as Romans eleven twenty five tells us. Uh, and the, the, the role of the church, actually, according to Romans eleven eleven, is to make Israel jealous, that they see how the church functions with a, a heart belief uh, in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they see how uh, the Lord deals with the church. The purpose of that is to make Israel, the wife of God, jealous. So we want to uh, move into Thessalonians, which are the two New Testament scriptures that we've used, First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, to kind of give us a, a wrap-up and an overview here um, of the New Testament perspective on the day of the Lord. And we're going to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 now. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And just as in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, those first um, 11 verses, we saw Paul make the the clear distinction between the Israelites that are going to be living during that tribulation period and the church the difference between uh, sons of the day and sons of the night, and the fact that the sons of the day will not witness, will not experience, will not participate in that tribulation period because that tribulation period is intended principally for unbelieving Israel, but also for all the unbelievers of the world, which would include, obviously, the unbelieving Gentiles. But again, God's focus is Israel, and we have to understand that. And and once we do and let the Scriptures show us that, God's whole plan just flows. And if we can get over this self-imposed idea that everything in the Scripture has to be about me, it has to be about the church, if we release that because it's not true and recognize that God has a purpose and a plan for his wife, Israel, and he has a purpose and a plan for his son's wife, the church, then it all just flows. And that doesn't make the church any more or any less important than Israel. God has a separate plan for each, 
and you can all, you could call it co-equal, but there's so much emphasis today to want to raise the church up above, uh, way above Israel, simply because of this idea that, well, Israel killed my Messiah, therefore they are not deserving of anything good from God. Well, God's plan is quite different. God's plan says, yes, Israel did turn their back, but I'm a covenant-keeping God, and I will bless Israel with every blessing that I promised the patriarchs of Israel. They will have those blessings, but because of their unbelief, because they turned their back on my son, I'm going to turn my attention to those who weren't even seeking me. That's called the church, and I am going to, to use a local phrase, I'm going to bless their socks off. Because when you think about it, the blessings to the church are going to be greater. They are and will definitely in the future be greater than the blessings to Israel. Even though Israel is God's wife, because we believed in faith alone without any need for signs, the Jews require signs and the Greeks or the Gentiles require knowledge and understanding. We believe in faith alone. Therefore, the church will be blessed with heavenly blessings. All of our blessings that are promised to us deal with heaven. None of our blessings, none of the blessings to the church, according to the scripture, have anything to do with the earth. Contrary-wise, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but quite different from that, is God's blessings to Israel, God's blessings to his wife, are all earthly. It's going to be a wonderful time on the earth, but they're going to be in their Adamic bodies. Israel will be in their Adamic bodies, and they will still be susceptible to Satan, even though Satan is going to be in the pit when they're blessed through the millennial kingdom. Satan is still going to have, uh, it's going to be the evilness uh, of the instinctive evil in the heart that started in the Garden of Eden. That will still be there. In fact, I believe that that's one of the main reasons that we have this thousand-year kingdom with Satan being constrained in the pit is for God to show man that even in an almost perfect state with Jesus sitting on the throne in Jerusalem and the world in a much, much, much better uh, condition than it is today morally, that man will still sin because of the instinctive evilness of his heart, that he needs Jesus Christ to be his Savior. And indeed, people will have to turn to Christ during the millennial kingdom in order to live out their long, long lives. Remember, people are going to live for hundreds of years again in the millennial kingdom, but they will still die if they don't turn to Christ and they will be judged. So again, that getting a little bit off track there, but I get excited when I talk about these things because it's, when, you, when you understand these things, Bible prophecy becomes a serious thing. It becomes an encouraging um, encouragement to those that are serious about their Bible study. And I pray that that's the way you see it as well. And if not, that you will over time as you go through these scriptures with us, because this is encouragement for serious Bible students, uh, as opposed to just entertainment for, uh, for the curious, if you will. So Paul is telling the, um, the believers, these are believers and they're in Thessalonica, which is Greece. So these are uh, most of these are are Gentiles, but there are Jews there as well. Remember, the believing Jews were scattered 
because of the persecution at the um, the death of Christ. So there are Jews in this audience, as Paul talks to the Thessalonians, but it's principally Gentiles. And he's telling them again, this is his second letter to the Thessalonians. The first letter was to encourage them that, no, you have not missed the rapture. Somebody has come along after Paul wrote the first letter and has said, Paul has misled you. You will go through the rapture. As a matter of fact, go through the rapture. You will go through the tribulation. And as a matter of fact, you people in Thessalonia, you are in the tribulation. I mean, you're being punished. You're being persecuted horribly. That's got to be the tribulation for you. Well, it's lowercase t, not uppercase t. And Paul writes his second letter to the Thessalonians to make clear that, hey, whoever this person was or whoever it was and however it was presented to you, it is wrong. I Let me share with you again the word of God as to who you are, what you have to look forward to that is encouraging and what's going to happen to the unbelievers. So he restates it again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So let's, um, let's read these first uh, 10 verses or so here. It says in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, Now we request you, brethren, so you know he's talking to the believing church, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Well, there's a very clear description of the rapture of the church. The Lord's going to come, and we're going to be gathered together to him. He's not coming to the earth. We're going to go up in the air to meet him, together to him. Verse 2, that you are not quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, I'm going to stop right here, and I'm not going to spend time on it right now, but I will definitely come back to it. Depending on your version of the Bible, um, my uh, New American Standard, which is a word-for-word translation of the Bible um, out of the Greek and the Hebrew, says the day of the Lord. Now, there is another well-known day, uh, another well-known word-for-word interpretation of the Greek and the Hebrew that says the day of Christ. And I'm, I'm asking you to consider the scriptures that we have studied about the day of Christ and the day of the Lord, and I'll let you discern through your your pleading with the Holy Spirit to give you insight which one you think is correct, the day of the Lord or the day of Christ. I believe the day of the Lord is correct because the way this scripture flows, and obviously all the other scriptures, the day of Christ does not fit here. And I'll explain to you uh, as we go through in our next uh, teaching portion of our program. So we're going to finish out reading chapter 2 down to verse 10, and then we're going to come back and we're going to spend time looking at this as we use this as our wrap-up to our uh, exploration of the term, the day of the Lord. But let's now, as we always do, transition over once again to our Q&A portion, and we're going through some scriptures dealing with a question that states, does the fact that Israel is the wife of God have any impact on end-time prophecy? And we went back and showed, yes, indeed, Israel is the wife of God, as the questioner 
clearly stated, so they've done their homework. Uh, we went through the actual wedding ceremony in Exodus 19, and we went through several Old Testament scriptures where God refers to himself as the husband of Israel. And then we moved into um, making the case, which is not the popular case today, unfortunately, because there's a lot of um, distorted, uh, for lack of a better term, distorted teaching out there that the church has, is, and will be the center of God's plan for mankind. But we know from a literal study of the Scripture that it is Israel that is the center of all of God's plans, and the church plays a role in that. And depending on what you've been taught over your lifetime in church and your Bible studies and whatnot, that might become as a, well, yeah, I know that, or that might come as an absolute shock to you. Because people say their rationale is, how can the, the Israelis, how can the Israelites possibly be uh, rewarded by God because they killed his, his Messiah that was promised to Israel? Well, first of all, they didn't. The Romans killed him. We all killed him, if you will, um, through unbelief. But God married Israel long before the church ever was, was part of God's plans. And uh, everything up to the beginning of the church, and we pointed this out in our last uh, couple of programs, everything in the scriptures leading up to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, which is the description of Pentecost, this is that period of time, 50 days after Christ was resurrected from the grave, the promised beginning of the church occurred. So the church occurred in Acts chapter 2 at what's called Pentecost, and the church will be the preeminent focus of God on the earth until he determines the exact time when he's going to take the church away to heaven it's called the rapture of the church, and then the church will stop its functioning on the earth, and God will turn his full attention back to Israel, back to his wife. So everything before Pentecost and everything after the rapture is all about Israel. But in between Pentecost and rapture, it's all about the church. And that's the difference between the primary difference between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace, which are the next set of prophetic terms we're going to contrast when we finish our teaching portion on the day of Christ contrasted with the day of the Lord. So that's coming up fairly quickly here in our teaching portion of our um, programs uh, in the very near future. So to make the point about the church transitioning away and God coming back to put his, or Jesus actually, um, coming back to make, to put full attention back on Israel. We went to Acts chapter 15, 13 through 18, and we did that two or three programs ago to show uh, the distinction. And we're going to go back to that. But what I wanted to do was we went to Amos chapter 9, and Amos is one of the Old Testament prophets. There's 12 Old Testament minor prophets, and if you go to Ezekiel and then to Daniel and then to the minor prophets, starting in, in as you find them in the Bible, Hosea, Joel, and then Amos, you'll find this 8th century prophecy 
about how God will punish Israel, and that's what he's done in the past. Uh, He continues to do today, but there will be a point in time in the future when he will come back, and that's the second coming of Christ, will come back and rebuild Israel as in the days of David. It says, I will rebuild the tent of David. In other words, reestablish the kingship of David. I will re, I will put my attention, if you will, back on Israel in the form of blessing. It has been in the form of punishment up until now, but there will be a day in the future. And I made the point as clear as I possibly could in our last program that Amos, as an Old Testament prophet, had no concept of the church. What he knew from the scriptures and from the leading of the Holy Spirit at his time there in the 8th century B.C. was there was going to be a coming of the Messiah, that's his first coming, and then there would be a second coming when he would come back uh, to uh, to the earth to set up his kingdom. In between those two events is the church, but he had no idea of the church because remember, if they had accepted Christ, if Israel had accepted Christ at his first coming, there would have been no church. There was no need for a church because his kingdom would have been set up. As a matter of fact, there'd be no need for the second coming. But of course, that that didn't happen, so there's no need to speculate on it because the Bible doesn't teach it because it didn't happen, nor was it prophesied. Um, but it is it is a historical fact. So we went to Amos chapter 9, 8 to 12 to show you what an Old Testament prophet's view was, and now we're going to go back to Acts chapter 15. So if you would go into your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts, Acts chapter 15. And remember in Acts chapter 15, this is Paul coming back from his missionary journey, and he's sharing with the church at Jerusalem, which is James, Jesus' half-brother, is now the president of the council in Jerusalem, and you've got all the apostles there, Peter and so forth. And they're making the point, Paul is making the point that the Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. And Peter lets them know that, well, hey, yeah, even though I'm the apostle to the Jews, the first Gentile, which was Cornelius in Caesarea, I, Peter, was instrumental in bringing the first Gentile to faith in Christ. God, obviously, because of that, has shown me, Peter, that grace, that the, the, the free gift of salvation is going to be offered to everyone, Jew and Gentile. And then they went it to further, and here's the point I want to make. It says in um, um, verse 12, it says, All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, or Simon Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. This is a clear description of the church and the rapture of the church. Because look at the sequence. With these words of the prophet Agree, the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return. Now, he's starting to quote Amos chapter 9, but he's inserting a verse there because Amos had no idea of the church. 
after these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. Then he goes on to, to quote Amos. But they have inserted an understanding of the church and the rapture of the church here. And I want to spend just a little bit of time on that in our next program before we finish up our understanding of the day of the Lord. It's so important here. Uh, remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.